Well, as our panel is getting uh, situated, thank you all for being here today. Uh, last night was a tremendous evening with uh, Dr. Smith, and I'm going to go, guys, very informally and go by just first names. Uh, so when Gerald spoke to us about the Civil Rights Movement, we, it was videoed. It will be online, so if you were not able to be there, you'll have access uh, to that. A uh, lot of things we can talk about, so I'm going to jump right in and uh, uh, start with uh, Gerald. Gerald, tell us exactly what was the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and kind of, and then you others can jump in as well. What led up to it taking place? Okay. Well, first of all, good morning, everyone, and I want to thank Dr. Aiken for the invitation and the hospitality, and Dr. Keithley. Uh, we've truly enjoyed our visit here on this uh, wonderful, fine campus. Uh, last night, I spoke about the child of a storm, of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Uh, the Child of a Storm is a phrase taken from an article written by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. in 1964. And what King was basically alluding to was the fact uh, that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 uh, was the product of many years of segregation, of racial violence, uh, and of discrimination throughout American society when uh, public accommodations were separate uh, with blacks and whites, with restrooms and drinking fountains and schools and cemeteries and hospitals, and the list goes on and on. And then finally, after years of protest, after years of praying, uh, in 1964, the United States Congress, uh, following a bill that had been submitted by then uh, the late President uh, John F. Kennedy, Congress took up a discussion on this civil rights bill that would outlaw... Uh, segregation in public accommodations, uh, but not only that, but would address voting rights in America, would address school desegregation, and would also eventually address discrimination in employment uh, regarding to race, uh, sex, uh, national origin, as well as religion. And so on July the 2nd of 1964, President Lyndon Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that officially uh, bans segregation in public accommodations. Uh, and, of course, um, uh, as we look back on that particular act now on the 50th anniversary, we sort of look around and see how the landscape has changed. There's no longer separate restrooms and that sort of thing. But we also, uh, as this conversation will proceed today, we'll look just to get a sense of how far we have come. Even though de jure segregation is no longer in place, uh, what about the status of de facto segregation? In other words, segregation by custom. Now, you mentioned last night that uh, when the bill was introduced, uh, it did not sell immediately through uh, both houses of Congress, but rather it uh, took a while. Right. Uh, there was a, um, interestingly enough, it passed through the House once it got out of the uh, House of Representatives, once it got out of committee, but then it went to the Senate, and in the Senate there was the longest filibuster uh, in American history, a long debate on this particular bill. Uh, that was led by uh, then-Senator Richard Russell from Georgia. Uh, and, of course, uh, the debate was so long, it lasted for 75 days, 534 hours, 1 minute and 51 seconds <laughs> uh, in discussing this particular uh, bill. And finally, after a number uh, of amendments that were discussed and voted on and rejected, back and forth uh, with President Lyndon Johnson constantly working the phones, uh, with King and a number of grassroots, pro grassroots protesters, uh, you know, putting pressure on Congress to take some sort of action with a number of students, seminary students, by the way, uh, who uh, had come to Washington, D.C. and to hold a constant vigil uh, urging uh, the Senate uh, to pass this bill. Uh, it did pass, uh, I think, by a vote of 73 to 27. Now, there were a number of things that uh, kind of led up to uh, the boiling point uh, for the legislation going forward and uh, then eventually being passed. And uh, one of them was uh, the Greensboro sit-in. So, Clarence, you are actually there. So give us, first of all, just a little bit of perspective, what it was like. Uh, how old were you that year? 19. 19. All right. So just tell us a little bit about where you were living, uh, what you were doing, and then just kind of walk us, take as much time as you need, and walk us through exactly what took place in this uh, significant moment. Well, one of the things, first of all, is that 
I truly believe in a divine intervention, and just as I'm sitting here today, I'm not sitting here by accident. Uh, it's not, it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with not being called out. Uh, on February 1st, 1960, there were four students that went into downtown Greensboro uh, and to Woolworths and sat down at the lunch counter. My participation started on the second day when a guy by the name of Ezell Blair, whom I had started school with in the first grade, came down to the lounge and told me what they had done on the first day and asked me if I would participate. What, what happened on the first day? Anything the, at all? The first day was that they went in. See, Woolworths was a place that um, they had inequality in one area, and that was at the lunch counter. You could go any place there. They had about nine, ten places you could go, and um, um, everybody was treated, treated equally. I can remember as a child growing up a number of times going to the lunch counter and getting my meal to go, getting food to go. And, uh, of course, blacks could not sit at the counter and eat, so we had segregation during that time as far as that was concerned. And so uh, a young man by the name of... Um, uh, who actually started it, um, came home from, from Wilmington, North Carolina. And it was early in the morning, he came to Union Bus Station downtown Greensboro. And uh, he was hungry, he wanted something to eat. And so they, at Union Bus Station, they had uh, uh, a restaurant that was open, but they wouldn't serve him. So he went back to campus and talked to the three other guys that were there on the first day, because I was there on the second day, about what had occurred. And so they made a decision that they were going to actively see if they could change the situation. And so what you had was, I grew up in an era known as Jim Crow, which is separate but equal. And so when you would go into F.W. Woolworths, what you would see downstairs in the basement, you would see one water fountain saying colored and one saying white, bathroom saying colored and one saying white. When I looked at the water coming out of that water fountain, it all looked the same to me. Uh, however, that was just the way that it was. So you had these four young men walk into F.W. Woolworths and request they be seated. So I likened them to be the four, four Moses that parted the Red Sea of segregation. I likened them to be the, like the, the, the four Hebrews that stepped over in the fire furnace uh, of uh, oppression. And they changed the dynamics and they cried out, to let my people go. So my participation started on February the 2nd. They were also the four horsemen of the apocalypse mm -hmm. sent by Jesus. Right. They definitely were. And so this was a totally different time when I walked into Woolworths in that it was a defining moment. And the strange thing about defining moments is that we all have them. Those moments don't define us. What we do in those moments, that's what defines us. And so this time I went in with a, a, a different mindset. I sat down at the lunch counter, asked to be served. But let me say this before uh, I get to that. Ezell Blair, who had told me what they had uh, done, promised me that he was going to buy my lunch that day if they served me. I'm still waiting on that meal. <laughs> and so as we walked in the F.W. Woolworths and I sat down at the, at the counter... I had no idea uh, that we would make the history that we made, but uh, it was like uh, they acted like we were not there. It was like the imaginary color line that you don't cross because there was an understanding that there was a certain place for blacks and there was a certain place for whites. And so as we sat there, there was uh, some controversy from the standpoint that we were, were heckled, called names, uh, various kinds of things did happen. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the people that worked behind the counter, who was a black guy, said to us, why don't you get up because you're threatening my job? But uh, it was a nonviolent movement. And um, I had been prepared for this when I was growing up because, um, as I said, divine intervention. Uh, when I was born, I was named after my father's best friend who was a white guy which set the tone for me, having bridged the gap 
between the races. So you were born into a home where the bridging of the racial divide was already taking place because your father and a white man were best of friends. My father was a sharecropper for him, as a matter of fact. And you shared with us last night that you would go into their home? Yeah, and actually I uh, left from South Carolina when I was about four years of age. We moved to North Carolina. And my father, with a third grade education, never worked for anybody but himself. And uh, he had rented a, a garage space from this guy who became another one of his best friends, who was a white guy again. And we didn't have a TV at that time. And I know that's hard to believe, but at that time, we didn't have a TV. So uh, he would invite us to come over to his house. He invited my father, and my father took myself and my middle brother over to his house, and we would be on the floor. And one fight specifically, I, I remember, we would go there to watch the fights. And it was a fight between Joe Lewis and Rocky Marciano. And my father's pulling for Joe Lewis, and he's pulling for Rocky Marciano. <laughs> so that's the kind of childhood that I live now. Even before that, uh, when I, we first moved to Greensboro, we lived in a quote-unquote black neighborhood. But after living in that neighborhood for two years, we moved over by what is now UNCG, which is now, uh, then was Women's College. So it was four houses where blacks lived, surrounded by white neighbors. And so I was bused into the black community to go to school, but when I got out of school, the only people I had to play with did not look like me. And they would come to my house, so I learned at a very uh, young age that there was no difference. And so I was being prepared all of this time for this event that was going to occur in my life, which I had no idea that it was going to occur. Uh, having been born on the wrong side of the tracks, or what they call the wrong side of the tracks, I was out to prove that I could compete. I didn't want to compare, I just wanted to, to be able to compete. So in, in getting prepared for this, uh, it was 176 days that people sat down at that lunch counter to make this transition, to make this change. Uh, so we sat down to stand up for freedom. Uh, so we, we made this decision that, and one of the things I think about all the time is that this old Negro uh, uh, song, gospel, that before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. If it's not worth dying for, it's not worth living for. As, as John Paul saw, Jones said, uh, as it was said, give me liberty or give me death, or I've just begun to fight Patrick Henry. So these are the kinds of things that uh, I reflect on during this time uh, as to what occurred because people ask me, was I fearful? I had faced more fear uh, when I was growing up because I grew up in a neighborhood where, we, where you almost had to fight. You had to fight almost every day because we were the new kids on the block and we were always challenged. So uh, I was well prepared um, for this particular situation. So you sit down, they ignore you, what, what was the end result of all this? Uh, the police, we, we, let, we sat there from 11 until about 3 p.m. The police came in uh, to observe what was going on. Uh, on the next day, it's actually when the, if I remember correctly, it's when the KKK showed up. And so we have all these situations that we're dealing with but we have made a decision that we are there for a change. We are sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so we even had bomb threats. People were spat upon. Some people went to jail. You had all kinds of situations. But it was a movement of, the, of a particular set of, uh, a particular group of people. But I have since reflected and understand that, and now I understand that I was not just sitting down for a people, a particular uh, group of people, but for America as a whole. So we put Jim Crow on trial to find out whether or not uh, our Charters of Freedom, our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, and our Bill of Rights, whether or not they were just words on paper, or did that second sentence really mean what it said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that have been endowed by that creator with certain, unequal, uh, with certain rights that, that among these are life, living, and the pursuit of happiness. And so we challenged that to find out uh, if America was a country of exceptionalism. So I always, I tell people all the time now that you always have to be, you're taking uh, one or two steps. You're always taking a step toward freedom, or you're taking a step backwards toward the, the tyranny of King George III.
All right, I've got two historians here, in Dr. O'Quinn uh, and also Dr. Roach, David and Brent. Uh, David, you wrote your dissertation in this particular area, so listening to what uh, has been shared both by, by Gerald and Clarence, kind of give us a perspective, I guess, if you like, from uh, where we as uh, white Southern Baptists were at this particular moment in time. Well, white Southern Baptists were obviously, even when you look at the history on the face of it, were not in the same place with pushing for integration. In fact, at the 1964 SBC annual meeting, which was held in Atlantic City, New Jersey, as the Civil Rights Act was moving through Congress, uh, there was a motion, from, a recommendation really, from the Christian Life Commission, which was the precursor to the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And the executive secretary of the Christian Life Commission wanted Southern Baptists to affirm this legislation that was moving through Congress. And so they brought the recommendation before the Southern Baptist Convention, and there was a substitute. This was by way of resolution? No, it was. I guess back in those days, as I read the, the minutes, the entities could actually bring a recommendation. And I think this was a Christian Life Commission recommendation. But it would still have yeah, kind of a the resolution. force of a resolution given our policy that you can't force churches to do anything. So it's right. like a resolution. Right, exactly. Okay. Go ahead. A resolution. And so um, when this was brought to the floor, a pastor from Louisiana offered a substitute recommendation. And rather than affirming the legislation moving through Congress, the substitute recommendation just said broadly, we affirm the brotherhood of all Christians and we vow to pray pray that everyone would get along. It was, on the face of it, an okay recommendation, but also an obvious attempt to avoid endorsing this legislation that was going through Congress. They took a standing vote at first, and the substitute motion was declared defeated, but it was so close that they decided to take a ballot, and on the ballot, the substitute motion was adopted, so the Christian Life Commission's motion that the convention affirm the Civil Rights Act was set aside, and the convention went on record as with sort of an innocuous affirmation of nothing that anybody didn't didn't affirm. Uh, and then even in addition to the convention action, the president of the SBC at the time was K.O. and White. He was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Houston. And he had gone on record as saying that he opposed the Civil Rights Act, not in, in the whole, but because there were certain parts he objected to. And I suspect that was kind of a common view, that Southern Baptists wouldn't come out and say, we are opposed to integration, but would just find little ways to object to it. Uh, after the Civil Rights Act was passed on July 2nd, there were, there may have been more, but I know there were three Southern Baptist colleges in Mississippi that refused to sign an assurance of compliance with the law. So in other words, they said, we're, we're not going to make any official declaration that we will abide by the anti-discrimination um, aspects of this law. So it wasn't a positive thing from the side of Southern Baptists. So I guess it would be accurate to say uh, at best we were sitting on the sideline at, for the most part and at worst we were actually opposed to what was taking place because we were so deeply committed to segregation. Yes, but I don't think, uh, I think sin is more subtle than a deep commitment to segregation. And so I mean, I think of even on the level of individual sin, if you say something cross to your husband or wife or your kids, it's not because you came down to breakfast thinking, I'm going to look for an opportunity to say something sinful. It just happens in the moment with temptation. And I think that's part of what happened with Southern Baptists. I mean, everybody that opposed integration uh, who's a believer on the judgment day is going to be grieved of the joy they robbed themselves of and of the glory they robbed God of. But that being said, I don't think it was an intentional effort uh, as much as sometimes we make it out today. I think one issue that was going on is there were some Southern Baptists, some, not many, but some, who were really pushing the convention to integrate. But those same people were also uh, advocating more liberal theological views, and they were advocating liberal social views. I mean, later when abortion became an issue, the same people that were advocating racial integration and brotherhood were also saying, well, there ought to be therapeutic abortion that's allowed. Uh, the same people that were saying there ought to be integration were also saying, um, well, we don't know if the scripture is completely true. In many cases, they were saying that. So I think Southern Baptists, the rank and file who were very theologically conservative, saw these leaders who were advocating integration and their whole worldview was suspect in a way. So you had the cultural force uh, of segregation as a as a lifestyle, but then you also had uh, the fact of I, mean, I guess I take a contemporary illustration if 
uh, Al Sharpton made a good point about race, Southern Baptists still might be a little reluctant to accept it because many Southern Baptists would think their theological premises and uh, worldview points that he holds that we don't agree with. So even if he makes a good point, the fact that the worldview of the speaker is somehow suspect uh, kind of gives Southern Baptists uh, a reason, if not an excuse, to reject the advocacy of integration. So I, I just think the story was complex in that way, too. If I can jump in and add to what David said, um, Charles Marsh wrote a book entitled God's Long Summer in which he looked at the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Jackson, Mississippi, Douglas Hudgens. It's kind of a, an example of, of all Southern Baptist pastors at the time. And it's not a real pretty picture of Pastor Hudgens, uh, but, but one of the things Marsh says is that Hudgens was being pulled from both sides being asked to, to come out strongly in favor of segregation and some urging him to speak out against segregation. And he, his take was almost apolitical, that I'm a Southern Baptist, my concern is with the eternal souls of men, with evangelism, with missions. What's going on with the protests and civil rights, that's a distraction from our mission. And on one hand, you can understand that mindset and, and even celebrate it. Southern Baptists do have that eternal mindset and are driven by missions. On the other hand, we see that maybe used as, as somewhat of an excuse or just being too apolitical and not seeing the need of applying the gospel in a domestic sphere, in a, a case of, of social justice. Now, last night... Uh, Gerald, you alluded to uh, not only the Greensboro sit-in, but three or four other events in the immediate vicinity of 1964 that uh, brought this to a head. Um, I think it's good for us to know historically how God providentially used some very tragic things and then some other things to push this so that it got before the Congress and eventually was able to be pushed through. I think in particular of, of some deaths and then the tragedy in Birmingham. Talk to us a little bit about some of the other things that then God used, I believe, as we all do, to, to bring this to, to fruition. Yes, um, you know, I was just sitting here thinking um, about a quote from Frederick Douglass, uh, who was an abolitionist uh, in the uh, 19th century, black abolitionist in the 19th century, uh, who said that uh, where there is no struggle, there is no progress. And uh, there was significant struggle uh, that resulted in tragedy. And, of course, uh, following the Greensboro City ins in 1960, uh, in 1961, that was what was called the Freedom Rides, uh, where you had um, an integrated group of black and white freedom riders representing the Congress of Racial Equality, uh, better known as CORE. And um, they boarded a bus in May of 1961 in Washington, D.C., with the intent of traveling down to New Orleans uh, to commemorate the um, uh, Brown versus Board of Education decision, which was rendered on May 17th of 1954. So the plan was to get there by May 17th. Along the way, they encountered a tremendous amount of violence uh, in Anniston, uh, Alabama, and in Birmingham, and in Montgomery, where the bombs were, uh, uh, were uh, Molotov cocktails rather, were thrown onto the buses. Uh, individuals were beaten, both black and white freedom riders were beaten. Uh, and then, of course, finally reaching Jackson, Mississippi, and their lives were threatened there to the extent that federal marshals had to be called out. Uh, that was in 61. And then, of course, I think the tipping point, especially for President John Kennedy, were the Birmingham demonstrations of uh, the spring of 1963 where a number of demonstrators, which included, by the way, uh, a number of children uh, who could not even pronounce the word freedom, uh, they would say, we want our freedom, uh, bless their hearts. But uh, they were willing to go to jail. They were willing to uh, uh, face uh, fire hoses and police dogs and cattle prods uh, and billy clubs. Uh, and that image of citizens who were protesting nonviolently, by the way, uh, being uh, treated this manner that was broadcast not only uh, in America but across the world. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, America was priding itself on being a place that, uh, you know, one could truly find democracy and freedom, uh, and it looked hypocritical uh, on our part to see so many people being beaten. And, of course, uh, a few years before that, and we talked a little bit earlier, I, I briefly mentioned this last night, uh, the, the tragedy of the life of a young man by the name of Emmett Teal, uh, 14 years old, from Chicago, Illinois, uh, who comes to Money, Mississippi uh, in August of 1955 to visit his grandfather. Uh, he's with his cousins and some friends. They go into uh, a grocery store, Bryant's grocery store there in Money, Mississippi, uh, to get some candy. And uh, there's different, uh, um, different ways the story is told. Some say that Emmett Teal whistled uh, at a white woman. Some say that, you know, he said, bye, baby, on his way out the door. Nevertheless, she told her husband that this young black kid had said something that she felt was inappropriate. Her husband, along with his brother-in-law, went and uh, they literally kidnapped uh, 14-year-old Emmett Teal, uh, took him out uh, to a secluded place, beat him, shot him, threw his body in the Tallahatchie River, uh, tied his body to a 75-pound uh, cotton gin fan. Uh, several uh, days later, the body was uh, uh, discovered. Uh, it was badly decomposed. Uh, his mother, Mamie Teal, uh, decided that she wanted, the, in her words, the whole world to see what had happened to her son. And so they had a public viewing of Emmett Teal's uh, badly decomposed body. Uh, was was bloated. His face, was, of course, was distorted. Um, just just uh, just a horrible figure to look at, painful in terms of what had happened to this child. And this, this, this death of Emmett Till truly galvanized the movement, uh, and of course it, it just reached into the heart and soul, particularly of African-American families uh, who had young boys, knowing that their lives were constantly at stake, that you had to be very careful in terms of, uh, you know, not only... Uh, being in the presence of whites, but uh, even looking at a white woman uh, could cost you your life. And, and uh, it, it just, you know, simply revealed that if a 14-year-old kid uh, could be brutally murdered uh, for something like this, and, and those who were involved, uh, there was a trial. Uh, they were both found not guilty. Uh, it didn't take the jury that long to reach this verdict. Uh, in fact, I forgot exactly how long it took, but uh, it took so long because they stopped to drink a Coca-Cola. Uh, but they had pretty much decided that the two men who, uh, who had committed the crime uh, were not guilty. They would later confess uh, that they did it uh, and uh, paid $4,000 uh, for the interview. And uh, this kind of gets at the heart of something else that I think we need to talk about when we look at this reflecting back 50 years, is that when we look at segregation and even where we look at today, because at the heart of this whole thing, whether it's school integration, uh, whether it's, um, you know, housing, uh, uh, integrating our housing or employment, you know, one of, the, one of the major concerns and the same concern uh, that happened with Emmett Till was interracial marriage. And uh, whether it's a black man and a white woman or a white woman and a black man, this, sort of, this was a great fear of the South, this quote-unquote mongrelization of the races. And um, because of that, you know, there was this constant uh, white resistance uh, toward this possibility. And so how do we handle that? You know, how do we, we address that? Because that is still uh, a fear uh, and a concern, you know, even... Uh, 50 years after uh, the 1964 Civil Rights Act was passed. If I could interject, that fear of intermarriage was significant among Southern Baptists. Even people who would say we completely condemn the killing of Emmett Till and that they, they were worried about interracial marriage. Even into the, I mean, the 1980s, you find correspondence between leaders in the, in the movement among Southern Baptists for racial brotherhood, where they're, they're concerned about this. Uh, W.A. Criswell was a famous, um, well, famous Baptist leader in general. He pastored the First Baptist Church of Dallas for 50 years, uh, but he was also a famous segregationist in the 1950s. And in 1956, he spoke at the South Carolina State Evangelism Conference, and part of his sermon was a very fiery defense of segregation and urging pastors that if you're going to call yourselves men of God, you need to be willing to stand strong in opposition to these forces that would 
mandate that we integrate. He went to the South Carolina legislature the next day at the governor's invitation and delivered a similar address making similar points. But one of his great fears was this interracial marriage aspect and even the correspondence I'm thinking of uh, was between Emmanuel McCall who is a African-American leader among Southern Baptists he's still alive um, but he he did some great work at the home mission board and elsewhere and at Southern Seminary urging Southern Baptists to think about issues of race biblically but he corresponded with T.B. Maston who was uh, he was white but he was a real late leader in the movement for racial inclusiveness at Southwestern Seminary. And there was apparently an occasion where at Southwestern Seminary there was an interracial couple. I believe it was a white woman and a black man. And Mastin and McCall are corresponding because Mastin wanted to know what should I tell him about interracial marriage. And even in, I think this was around 1980 or 1982, uh, T.B. Mastin, the champion of, of racial inclusion, said, well, I, I don't know. It's just, it's not a real good idea. Uh, no, I think I'm getting that reversed. I think it was McCall that said that, actually. I think Maston wrote to McCall wanting advice. And McCall said, it's just not a real good idea because if you're a Southern Baptist, especially a minister, and you're married to someone of a different race, that's going to cause all sorts of problems for your ministry. I mean, those were even leaders that were on the cutting edge of the movement, and they had fears of interracial marriage, if not theologically, practically. So that, that came up again and again. And then, Gerald, there was also, and then we're going to jump ahead, uh, but the uh, Birmingham church bombing. That took place in what year? Uh, that was in September of 1963 as well, where four, uh, yes, where four uh, young African-American girls were uh, actually on their way to Sunday school class. And uh, just before the classes began, uh, a bomb went off at the 16th Street Baptist Church there in Birmingham. And if you go to Birmingham, it's, um, if you've ever been there to the 16th Street uh, Baptist Church, in the basement of the church, they have kind of an exhibit. And uh, one, of the, one of the fascinating stories behind what happened on, uh, in September of 63 is that the church had a, gla- uh, a, stained, a glass-stained window uh, with uh, the image of Jesus. And when the bomb exploded, uh, the face of Jesus blew out. Uh, left just a perfectly round circle, and so they took a picture of that. And so when you go there, you can you can probably Google it or whatever now, and you can see this picture uh, of this um, stained glass window that was a you know an image of Jesus. And when the bomb went off, the rest of the picture remained intact except for the face of Christ that was blown out. Another tragedy that led up to the Civil Rights Movement or Civil Rights Act of 1964 came on the night that John F. Kennedy decided to address the nation and express his support for the civil rights movement, which in and of itself was historically significant to finally have uh, a president of the United States come out in support of, of, um, of integration. And after giving his speech, the, the head of the NAACP in the state of Mississippi, Medgar Evers, returned home and was uh, shot and killed in cold blood in his own driveway as he was walking, walking home, walking to his front door to have his, his wife and his children come out and, and find him there. So the nation was already shocked <coughs> by Kennedy's message. Most Americans had no idea what the president was going to speak on. He, was just, he just asked for airtime, and it was advertised the president wanted to address the nation. Uh, and, and so there's... There's this shock of the president saying, I am going to uh, enter into Congress, present to Congress a strong civil rights bill, and that we need to end segregation. And then on top of that, you get the news of this cold-blooded murder of Medgar Evers. Yeah, and I might add, too, that um, with that, I'm glad you brought that out, is that um, two interesting facts regarding that. Um, the, um, uh, the person who killed Medgar Evers uh, was prosecuted, uh, Byron Della Beckwith. An interesting thing about that story is that years after uh, Medgar Evers had been buried, was in the grave, uh, in order to get more evidence to prosecute uh, Byron Della Beckwith, uh, they exhumed Medgar Evers' body, and uh, it was as though uh, he had recently been buried. There was no decomposition, so they were able, you know, to get the kind of evidence they needed to further the investigation of who uh, killed Medgar Evers in, in the 1990s. Byron Della Beckworth uh, uh, is um, 
is found guilty uh, and goes to prison. Uh, also, uh, the uh, individuals involved in the Birmingham uh, bombing of uh, 16th Street Baptist Church, they were also later, um, like 35, 40 years later, found guilty uh, of that crime as well. All right, so we jump forward from 1964, obviously. Uh, we've made progress. Uh, we're not where we were, praise God. But I think we would all agree we're not where we need to be. So I want to start with Clarence. Kind of just give us your reflections then on what has taken place since the, the sit-in, good and bad uh, and ugly, where you see us uh, having come and kind of where all right, where, where the pressure points today that still need to have our attention. And, guys, I'll ask you to follow up the same way, but I really want to know your perspective as we start here. Well, one of the things is that we have made progress. Uh, that's one good thing, but there are still those that would judge a person based on the color of their skin rather than the content of their character. And so we have uh, much work to do, but it's done in settings such as this where we can discuss issues and not resort to name-calling. So one of the great things, the great opportunities that you have here is that for we as Christians to understand that we are the conscious of America. We are called out to call those things as they are, and until you name it, uh, there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, it's, it's, it's like um, one of the, one of the, the things uh, that I think about often is that what most people do is when they see a storm coming up, they turn away from the storm. The whole idea is to turn toward the storm and go through that storm until you get to the eye of that storm and then you find calm there. And you see things that you have not seen before. And we're at a point in time now where that there's a, a movement about to try to take us back from which we have come. So if you look at the history of America, what you will see is that America is about a, a series of movements. You've had agenda-driven movements, and you have principle-driven movements. And we need to understand the difference between the two. For example, the, the gay rights movement is an agenda-driven movement. And when they stack that on top and call that civil rights, I, take offense, I personally take offense to that because this is how I came. This is what I came to looking like. The other, one of the other things we have to recognize is that this, all this is is dirt. So whether or not it's black dirt or white dirt doesn't make any difference. If you want to know about the, a person, you have to go inside. So we need to have more conversations about the issues that are at hand. For example, uh, one of the things that needs to be understood by whites, for an example, is that they un have, need to understand the, the emotion that has been carried forth throughout history based upon the horrific things that have happened to blacks. And so they need to understand that so that they can get a picture of what we have gone through so they can empathize rather than sympathize so therefore they're able to, to help the situation because, uh, as Dr. King said, unless we learn to live together as brothers, we'll die together as fools. And so one of the things that I have done with the, with the um, uh, Martin Luther King Commission is that I put in place a pioneering program called Content of Character. And the idea is to take that program and implement it in every county in the state of North Carolina hopefully that it will go nationwide, that we begin to understand that it's about the character of a person, uh, that America will always look like the content of the character of its people. So we have this obligation that we understand that I need to respect your rights and you need to respect mine. And so we live in this free society where we're able to, if we're able to self-govern ourselves because that you cannot legislate the heart. But you can put things in place to change the behavior. And so that's where we are right now, where the, we get this understanding of where we have come from. There are far too many people in America that do not understand the history of America. And if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. That's why I was delighted to see what uh, 
Dr. Smith showed last night because he showed America what it, what, what, uh, what some of the things that have happened in America. And I don't get upset about those things. What I get upset about is when I see an Amos and Andy cartoon, uh, Buckwheat, where that's not depicting of who I am. Um, and when I see the inhumanity of humanity, it reminds us that we can never go back to that place again. And we as Christians are responsible for that. And, and we played a great part in that, even though, as has been discussed, it, 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 it has been slow. But when you go back and you look at uh, the history of America, you will see that there was divine intervention from the beginning when you talk about the Declaration of Independence, when you talk about freedom of religion, all these things are tied in to what is, is within the framework of the Bible. Gerald, you mentioned, and Clarence alluded to it, but used a phrase last night that I've not heard before, but I will hang on to now, a collective memory. Talk about, when we raised the issue last night about Ferguson and what happened in Florida, what happened in New York, where black men uh, were killed, murdered, their lives were taken, and sometimes white America says, well, I don't understand why they overreact, which I don't think it is an overreaction, but that's at least kind of how it comes across. Help us again understand why it is that black men and women do respond the way they do, because I think it's just well said, our, our amnesia here keeps us from seeing this through your eyes and from your, from your perspective. I think, um, you know, what I was talking about is that, um, one, we have to keep in mind that, that collective memory um, is generational, uh, and it's passed from one generation to the next. And so even though there are things that I did not experience, um, uh, you know, my mother and my grandmother experienced it and grandfather, and just hearing their stories and their memories of what had taken place was shared with me. Uh, and so I've shared it with my kids. And so whatever, you know, when, whenever there's some sort of, um, whether it's a, a tragedy involving race or some sort of racial issue, then um, that memory of, you know, my forefathers comes to the forefront of my mind in terms of how I interpret it and how I receive it. And, and, and you, all, you all have a collective memory as well. Uh, it's based on your family's history. It doesn't necessarily have to be race, but it could be anything. And, uh, and a couple of things I'll say quickly is that, uh, first of all, um, um, you know, images are so important. And that's why last night I spent a lot of time showing the images and how these images have literally been seared in our mind. Uh, and, they, and we hold them there consciously and, and, and subconsciously. They're there. Um, you know, the whole idea that, that African Americans are not that smart or that blacks can dance or that blacks are most athletic. Uh, those things are there, that whites are smarter, that whites are more patriotic, that they work harder. And, and, and they're constantly being reinforced, and we really don't even realize it. And one of the things that, that I'll say this quickly as well is that, um, you know, my wife and I, we go to the movies every Friday night, and we've watched a number of different mo movies. And, and a part of the conversation that I share with my wife, I said, you know, uh, it amazes me how you know, um, whites are always saving the world. Um, you know, they always come out the hero. Uh, they're saving the world. They're fighting the monsters, you know, whether it's Batman or Superman or whatever. Even Dark Man was a white man. I said, my goodness. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> um, uh, you know, give a brother a break. Can't we win something, you know? Uh, can't we come out looking good? You know, you can always guarantee that, you know, it's the black person is going to be the first one that gets killed. You know, if there's a shark involved, you know, okay, he's out of there. You know, she's out of there. You know, that sort of thing. And so you constantly sort of see these images. The other, the second part of that is that uh, we, we, we do not get a chance to see African-American agency. Uh, what I'm saying is that African-Americans taking control of their own circumstances and fighting the battles for themselves. I mean, that's what we saw in the 1960s, you know, with the sit-in demonstrations and so forth. These were black people going down, uh, doing what they needed to do for themselves, and I'm not going to take it anymore. And there were so many uh, situations in which that took place. But now what we see, when we even see documentaries or particularly some sort of adaptation of a historical event, uh, it's the role that whites played in helping black people get to a certain point. We see the benevolency 
uh, of white America rather than the agency of African Americans. Lastly, what I'll share is simply this, is that um, uh, it all gets to a trust factor. You know, we don't trust one another, and that is because of the pain uh, of our past. Black people do not trust white folk. You know, uh, you know there, there's a concern that there is some sort of hidden agenda. Uh, what's in it for them? Yeah, I'll do this, but how is it going to help me? And, and, and whites don't trust black people, you know, because of a part of that, a part of that history. So, uh, you know, how do we overcome that? How do we move beyond that? Well, obviously, we need more conversations like this. Uh, you know, I would suggest um, is that, um, you, know, uh, you know, not only programs, but in terms of our curriculums, uh, it has to be implemented in the curriculum, not just uh, as a course, but as a required course to get through. Uh, so, um, you know, once we, you know, and there's a number of other things, I'll stop there, but uh, that's just kind of me speaking off the cuff. When we think about where we go today, I think one extremely important person is the local church pastor of where where we go today. And I think pastors and ministers of any kind can do something, it can do several things that are will really advance the um, advance the cause of Christ in this discussion. Among white Americans and white Baptists and evangelicals, I think one question is, well what are we supposed to do now? Uh we don't have segregated restaurants. Uh, there might not be that many blacks or Hispanics in our church, but I don't think we're actively discriminating we don't know what to do. And I think the pastor can be an important person to give some specifics. That involves educating ourselves as ministers, but also teaching people about things like equal opportunities in education, um, that the minority neighborhoods so often have schools that are just subpar, and this inhibits intellectual development, inhibits economic development. When you talk with African-American pastors, you hear, talk of, well, my people are making just as much income as your people, but they go to the bank and they can't get a loan for the same home that you can get a loan for. And pastors are just trusted figures uh, who can communicate some of these issues and communicate where do we go from here. The most important thing I believe pastors can do is to preach the gospel because Baptists can open up their state Baptist paper and see that Dr. Aiken said something about race that was good, but they don't have a relationship with him and they don't have the same trust with him or Dr. Moeller or Frank Page, our convention leaders, that they do with you if you're the local church pastor. So if you will just faithfully preach the gospel and especially the racial implications of the gospel, the people in your church trust you. And if you take them to Ephesians and you show them how Paul says, uh, the gospel solves the problem of alienation from God, but also solves the problem of alienation among people because from the time of the fall, people have been alienated from one another. I mean, Adam blamed Eve for the fall, and then Cain kills Abel, and then finally you get to Abraham, and uh, God has chosen a line of people that are going to be his people, and you think, well, okay, now that we have a chosen people of God, the alienation will end. But Abraham's descendants divide between Isaac and Ishmael, and Isaac's descendants become the chosen people of God. And you think reading the Bible, well, surely the alienation will, will end here because we have a new chosen people and a new blessing. But then Isaac's descendants divide between Jacob and Esau. And alienation comes in every time in the Bible you think the alienation is ending because God has now blessed and chosen a new specific group of people. Well, they become alienated again so that by the time of Jesus, you have even within the Jewish people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Zealots, and they can't get along. They especially can't get along with Samaritans and the Jews and the Gentiles are at complete odds with one another. And into that mix, Paul comes in Ephesians and says, Jesus Christ has come to break down the dividing wall of hostility. And then he gets to Ephesians 3 after he spent an extended time in Ephesians 2 talking about Jesus has come to abolish this division and make one new man where the church is inclusive of Jews and Gentiles. Then in Ephesians 3, the ESV translates around verse 3 or so. Paul says, of this gospel was I made a minister. And I think one implication we can take of that is Paul is saying the gospel of which I am a minister is an inherently interracial gospel. And if you're preaching that as a pastor and then you're showing people the practical implications of that, that goes a long way, not just to changing attitudes in your church, but then to have your church people go out and take those gospel values to the voting booth and to the public square and to their local PTA and even to the economic forum as they go into the bank uh, 
And there's great change that can happen and going forward if the local pastor will simply preach the gospel in its full racial implications. Uh, I'd like to share something briefly. Uh, when he talked about economics, reminds me, that's the piece that has never really been truly developed in that the first part was to, make, to get the door open. But after you get in the door, what do you do then? And so the economic piece has to be put in place. Education is a key. Now, from my standpoint, when I graduated from, I dropped out of A&T initially, and then I came after the military, I went back and completed my degree. The first job that I got with a business administration degree was loading and unloading boxcars. And I was asked, why are you doing that? Well, I was a single parent at that time. I had myself to take care of and my young daughter, so... And I knew this was temporary. But then when I looked at the American system, as I went out and applied for different jobs, and they, for whatever reason, said that you don't qualify or whatever they said, one thing that stuck in my mind, I finally came to realization, was that I can compete rather than compare. And so I went into business for myself and was in business for myself for 30 years out competing in the financial services industry where I began to understand how money works. That's a piece that the practical application has to be put in place so people have to understand that money is a game that everybody plays, but most people lose that game because they don't understand the rules of the game. Uh, what we saw in earlier years was the housing situation. When they opened the doors and where they allowed people to... to, to uh, purchase houses that they didn't have the monies to pay for. And so one rule of thumb is that if you have any bill that costs you more in a month than you make in a week, you're going to have to rob Peter to pay Paul at some place down the road. And so that economic piece needs to be put in place. The other part of it is that in America, one of the most powerful forces we have is politics. Blacks have never been a part of the decision-making. They have served as senators and all those kind of things. I mean in the private sector where that they help make decisions like uh, what Karl Rove does, for example. Uh, we need to have that kind of input so that people begin to understand that we are all one nation under God. And so that's the other piece I think that needs to be put in place. Well, there have been such great comments. I just wanted to maybe piggyback on just a couple real quickly. Um, David was telling us what pastors can do, and I had in mind, or individual Christians in particular, uh, as you, I, I think we should keep in mind the collective memory that Dr. Smith referred to and kind of the, the emotional baggage that, that African Americans in particular will, will have. And I'd say we just simply respond to that by being as as welcoming and as complimentary as we as we can be, um, almost in the same way that you would um, respond to someone who has suffered past injustice, maybe like a, a battered wife, <clears throat> that that you would probably take the extra step to to compliment that person, to make that individual feel welcome, um, to take her past into account when it comes to the way you, you treat her. Um, the other thing we can do as individuals in our congregation is, and in institutions like this, any evangelical organization, is call for minorities to be put in places of prominence and influence <clears throat> and to, to cultivate minorities so that they are prepared to be in those positions, but to put them there, at least, to, at the very least, you want to get their perspective on things. They have things to add to the table. But you also, as a body of Christ, as, as Christians, you want to put forward this image of, of what heaven's going to be like, and you do that here on earth. Uh, finally, in reference to, to agency, I just think that's a very important point, that remembering the role that African-Americans played. And I'm so glad Dr. Uh, that Clarence Henderson was here and, and we see someone who did that, who did it at the sit-in, who did it in his own personal life with 
with saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open my own business, I'm going to chart my own path. Um, for the Civil Rights Act of 1964, African Americans ultimately deserve credit for that being done. It was written, passed by whites in Congress, but that would not have happened had it not been for the sacrifices made by many. It was a child of the storm, like uh, Dr. Smith said. But the hidden history behind that act is that there were blacks going through Congress, lobbying congressmen, saying this needs to be done. And then the, the more public lobbying effort was the March on Washington. That famous March on Washington where, where Martin Luther King gives his I Have a Dream speech, <clears throat> you hear about that and you read about that because it was organized to pass this act. And the rhetoric there, the love shown there, the, the racial uh, unity demonstrated there spoke volumes and, and helped to convince Congress to pass that act. All right. We are out of time, so I want to do this as we close. Take no more than a minute. Thirty seconds is preferable. Final word that you'd want to say to this congregation out of what we've talked about today as to maybe you've already done it since I did, but where we go from here and what needs to be our focus in the in the immediate future. And uh, I'll go David, Brent, and then Gerald and let Clarence bring the final word. So, David. Uh, try to develop a collective memory if uh, of evangelicals and Southern Baptists, because I think when we do that, then we'll be able to go forward a little better as well, understanding the, the collective and individual sins. And then I would just say, again, preach the gospel and its racial implications. And as you do so, give specific applications uh, that come even from listening to people like Dr. Smith and Mr. Henderson address the specific problems that they face as African-American Christians and relay that to your people, whether you're a pastor or not, uh, because I assume all of you are in a leadership role where you have some influence. I'm just a urge you to take maybe a holistic approach to this. You have the big picture in mind. You, you advocate, be active for changes that are necessary to help race relations in the country. But on the personal level, again, uh, you can make a difference in a person's life. You, can, you as an individual can um, make a difference. And, just, and remember that. Um, I just, I'm a member of a predominantly white church. And we had uh, minority child care workers get a chance to address that church not too long ago. And I was just surprised by her remarks that she said, no one has shown hatred or disrespect to me. <clears throat> and many of you say hi, but what is really, uh, what's been re- really meaningful to me is when you've really treated me really as a person. You've, you've engaged me in conversation. And it was clear to me that that made such a difference in her life, in the way she looked at that predominantly white congregation. And lastly, you know, I would just challenge you to examine yourself. Um, what have you done? What are you going to do differently? And what is your greatest fear? And only you and God knows what that is. Um. I would say that you need to show yourself friendly to all and tell the truth in love and let it fall on whatever ground it falls on and understand that what's behind all of this is a spiritual warfare that's going on. Look for the movement of God in all situations because God is revealing a lot of things at this particular point in time. We need to recognize that God is a big God and it's the little us. He made us in his image. His desire is that he would express himself through us. And if he is going to do that, then you have to get rid of all of you and receive Jesus Christ and speak that which he brought forth. You need to understand that it takes a small group to get something big started. Jesus started with 12, and look what, where it, what it's come to. The sit-in movement I participated in started in with four, and before it was over, some 70,000 had participated in this movement. So now you sit in the driver's seat of history right now, and the question becomes, what are you going to do? If not you, then who? If not now, then when? If not this, then what? Because lives of all great men remind us that we can make our lives sublime. 
and departing leave behind us footprints in the sands of time. Thank you. Would you welcome and say again thank you to my panel for their contribution today? Amen. I uh, absolutely agree. This is something we need to do more often, and uh, we will. Uh, You can stand back up. I will close us in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this time that we have spent and how I've been challenged myself and blessed by my brothers. I pray indeed that we will take to heart the things that we have heard today and that we would be agents of change for your glory and for the good of all men and women, boys and girls, regardless of the pigmentation of their skin, their heritage, their nationality, because indeed we want to be a part of building a kingdom on earth that looks just like the one in heaven. You will do it. May we be a part of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.